Holy Spirit, we ask now that you would illuminate our minds, that you would open up our hearts. We know that you come and you take the things of Jesus and you speak them to us. You bring conviction, you bring truth, you bring reality to bear in our souls. And so God, open up our hearts and our minds to possibly one of the most important teachings in the book of Revelation for us right now as we think about the idols of our time and what it looks like to live faithfully in the midst of so much ideology and idolatry. And so, God, we just pray you do a work in us, challenge us, convict us, lead us into passive righteousness and justice and truth for your name's sake. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 2, I want to invite you if you have a Bible or on your device to turn there. Um, we're going to be reading about the, the church of Pergamum, the word to the church of Pergamum, um, verse two, chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. Hear what the Spirit has to say to the church. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we find ourselves, we've been doing uh, this series for the last couple weeks, and through Lent, we're looking at uh, the seven prophetic messages to the churches in Asia Minor. And we said that this uh, idea of the seven churches, seven is, is the idea in the book of Revelation of completion. And really, these seven churches represent all churches in all times and all places and the common temptations and struggles that we all face. And so um, we have to understand that what it meant in context to them in those churches before we begin to apply it to what it means to us now. We have to understand what it meant to them before we understand what it means to us. And so um, this uh, city of Pergamum, it's very similar, two very similar messages. So I'm gonna preach this week. Next week, Craig Parker, one of our deacons, is gonna come and preach on Thyatira. Two uh, similar uh, messages, but I think some, some distinctions and some helpful uh, distinctions between some things that were happening in these cities. And so again, on this uh, kind of imperial postal route, we're working our way north from Ephesus, uh, up the coast here, off the Aegean Sea to Smyrna, and now to Pergamum, a city that's about 55 miles north of Smyrna. Again, all of this happening in modern-day Turkey. And uh, Pergamum was one of the most beautiful, powerful, and elite cities in Asia Minor. It was a city with immense political influence. It was the capital city of the Roman province of Asia, and it was the center of what's called the imperial cult, the, the worship of Caesar because it was the city where the first provincial temple was built in honor of a living uh, emperor, Caesar Augustus. Um, And then there was another one built in Smyrna just a few years later. So tons of political influence and political capital 
political conversations, uh, a lot of intellectual influence. It was, the, it was famous, the Pergamon was famous for uh, its magnificent library, which held over 200,000 parchment scrolls. Um, actually, the word parchment is derived from the name for the city of Pergamon. Uh, there was a lot of religious influence, right? The, the city had a massive acropolis behind it, which was situated atop a thousand foot hill on which the ten, there were several temples that were dedicated to various gods and goddesses. Most famously, Asclepios, I think is how you say that one, the god of healing, whose symbol, uh, just as a side note, is the serpent. So if you see the serpent wrapped around a pole in some of the modern healthcare, uh, that comes and dates back to Greco-Roman times. There was a famous school of medicine where people who were afflicted with various, various diseases and mental illnesses would come to sit in this temple overnight, touch these snakes, these real snakes, and have a shot at experiencing the healing of the gods. Um, there was also a temple to Zeus called Zeus the Savior, um, which was about 20 feet high on a ledge that literally towered out over the city streets of Pergamum and it dominated kind of the architectural imagination of the city. There was a temple to Athena, the god of war, uh, goddess of war, and Dionysius. So there's lots of temples uh, in this city. But the point is, it is a powerful city. I mean, there was a presence when you walked around the city. I mean, think of if you were to combine Washington, D.C. And, um, and New York City, and you put them together with all the political things happening in Washington and all the, the, the history there, and, and New York City with all of its bright lights and imposing kind of cultural presence, that's what you have essentially the intersection of religious and political um, and intellectual power all kind of concentrated in a city. And so to this city, the Spirit writes these words through John. So we remember the pattern that we, we talked about a few weeks ago. I wanted to remind you, there's, uh, each of the letters generally starts with a vision of Christ. And then an affirmation, I know what you're doing, you're doing these things well. And then a correction, but I have this against you. An invitation away from a way of life that leads to destruction and towards one that leads to wholeness and, and deliverance and salvation and then a promise from the end of the book of Revelation about uh, the future coming into the present to meet God's people. And so the vision of Christ here is really fascinating. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. This is the second time we've, we've heard this in the book of Revelation. Go back to chapter one and Jesus talks about uh, this sword, this two-edged sword. Uh, interestingly, the symbol of the city of Pergamum was a sword. But in the Bible, and specifically in the book of Revelation, the sword is, is used as imagery, as metaphor for Jesus' war, his battle, cosmic battle against the satanic and demonic principalities and powers. That, and we talked about this last week a little bit, that kind of corrupt human persons, that corrupt human systems, and that corrupt human structures. And that's why he says, I know this city where Satan dwells. He's not literally saying like Satan has a throne in uh, Pergamum. What he's saying is throne is just another word for power. He has, uh, there's a concentrated satanic influence that exists in the structures and the loyalties and the kind of social architecture of the city of Pergamum. And so he's lifting back the curtain again to expose a deeper reality about something they're experiencing. And Jesus says, I'm coming to do war with these satanic powers. That's the vision of Jesus we get as a warrior. The second thing he then goes on to say is, I know, I, he affirms them, I know where you dwell. I know your habitation, I know that Satan's influencing. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, again, where Satan dwells. 
The, the affirmation here to this church is that you've been faithful in suffering. Apparently, one of the first martyrs, Antipas, is actually the only named disciple in the book of Revelation. And so apparently, he was killed, likely for his faithfulness, as we read about in Smyrna last week, the increasing persecution that came with being identified as a disciple of Jesus and saying, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Kyrios, not Caesar is Kyrios. And so uh, there's, there's some kind of a martyrdom that takes place. And he says, you're holding fast to my name. Literally this word holding fast, it's a play on words. So they're holding fast to Jesus while they're also holding false teaching. That's, that's important to pay attention to. It's the same kind of word there. It means to seize or to cling to. You're clinging to Jesus. You're clinging to the person of Jesus in the midst of suffering and you're doing a good job. Keep up the good work, keep being faithful in the midst of suffering for Jesus' name, but the correction then comes. But I have a few things against you. And, and this is, it gets kind of weird, so I'll explain this. It's, it's very, um, there's a lot of symbols and imagery here, but he says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, or Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. So if you are not familiar, I'm sure you were all like meditating in numbers this morning in your quiet time, but if you're not familiar with the story of uh, Balaam in the Old Testament, you can read about Balaam in uh, the book of Numbers, you can read about Balaam in Joshua, you can read about Balaam in 2 Peter, you can read about Balaam in Jude uh, 11. But um, the idea here is Balaam is, is likely, not, there's not like an actual person named Balaam who's teaching false things in Pergamum. Balaam uh, was kind of a, a, became like a proverbial saying. Like you would say, somebody's acting like a fascist, you're, you're being Hitler, okay? That's kind of like the same thing with Balaam. You're acting like Balaam or uh, Nicolaitan or Nicolaitan was another way to talk about uh, a newer manifestation of an old heresy, uh, this, this idea of Balaam. So it's a moniker that's synonymous with a teacher or a teaching that is leading the people of God into idolatry, into immorality, uh, and into uh, all of that kind of motivated by a sort of greed, greediness. Financial gain and financial prosperity is always associated with Balaam. So the story in the book of Numbers, there's a prophet named Balaam, prophet of God. And Balak, one of the kings of Moab, as the people of God are journeying through the wilderness after they've left Egypt, they, there's a horde of them, and literally a million of them making their way through the wilderness. And the king of Moab, Balak, gets scared. He's, he's afraid that they're going to attack his kingdom because there's, there's, the reputation of God is going out to these pagan nations and they're like, God is with these people. So Balaam, Balak contracts Balaam the prophet for a large sum of money and he says, I want you to go and I want you to curse the people of Israel. Now, God shows up to Balaam and says, no, no you're not gonna actually curse my people. I'm not gonna allow you to curse them. I'm gonna actually tell you what to say. And so Balaam comes back to Balak and he says, hey, I can only say what God tells me to say. I'm a prophet. I'm constrained by essentially what God is allowing me to say. He won't allow me to curse the people. And so rather than curse them, God uses Balaam in this kind of wicked transaction. And there's all kinds of other details about donkeys talking and other things we don't have time to get to. That's another sermon for another time. But the point is, God uses Balaam to actually bless his people. Three times Balaam pronounces a blessing over the people. They looks like, what's up with that? Like, I, I paid you to curse them. It's like, hey man, I can only say what God will allow me to say. Now what's interesting is, Revelation fills in a part of what's happening because in the next chapter, Numbers 25, so that's all in Numbers 24. In Numbers 25, the people of Israel begin to go after false idols. 
And what's interesting in the book of Revelation is it tells us how that happened. So Balaam and Balak part ways, and we don't really know what happens until thousands of years later, through the Spirit of God, he tells John to speak this word to the church. And what he says is, is that Balaam actually after that, instead of uh, cursing, he found another way to tempt the people of God. Notice what he says. He says he taught Balak to put a stumbling block. That word stumbling block is the word scandalon. He, he literally taught them how to scandalize the people of God and ultimately to defeat them, not with hard power, what we might call hard power, like domination, coercion, and, and, and cursing, but with a kind of soft power, with a kind of wooing them, attracting them. What he says is basically, you're not, like, like, this is just a general principle in life. The more you try to crush people and exert influence through domination, the more things seem to grow and multiply. We see that in the church worldwide. The more you try to stamp down the church in Iran, in Iraq, in Pakistan, in China, the more the church tends to grow. The blood of the martyrs, Tertullian said, is the seed of the church. It's, it can't be stamped out. So he says, rather than going that way, what I want you to do is I want you to send beautiful women into the camp of Israel to seduce them with cultural power. Invite them into the temples to serve. Invite them into the center of wealth and power and beauty and give them all kinds of sexual freedom and, and the best food and the drink that, uh, that we have to offer. Give them influential networks and connections and then watch them compromise their faith from the inside out, not from the outside in. You won't have to curse them, Balaam says, essentially, because then God will curse them for their unfaithfulness, their idolatry, and their immorality, and God will judge them. And sure enough, what we see in Numbers 25, it says, after this happens, literally he sends women into the camp to seduce uh, the men and women of Israel. It says they align themselves with Baal. They compromise by, by turning their allegiance, not, not, not just away from God, but they still were loyal to God, but also there's a syncretism that began to creep into the people of God. This, this is genius from like a, a strategy of infiltration and assimilation. If you're trying to assimilate a people group rather than crush them and dominate them and eradicate them, which leads to them often multiplying and flourishing, tempt them with the soft influence of attraction. Give them embodied, repeated habits, reinforced by a cultural system of money and sex and power and influence, and then you can get them to compromise. And so that's, that's essentially what's happening in Pergamum. We don't know exactly what's happening. There are false teachers or a false teacher who is in, infiltrating the community, leading them to compromise their faith through practicing cultural idolatry. Now, this is the opposite of the situation we saw a few weeks ago in Ephesus. Ephesus had a love problem, but they held on to the truth. We essentially have the inversion of that now. Like, scripturally, we need to hold on to both. We need to love and we need truth. But it's the opposite here. They have love for Jesus. They're holding on to Jesus, but it's a love without truth. We need both love and truth to be held together if we're gonna be faithful to Jesus. So let's just talk about, what I wanna talk about for our remaining time is, what is cultural idolatry? And how does it work and how does it play itself out? Because I, I really believe this is such a word for us right now. These next two weeks to me um, speak to so much of what we're experiencing right now uh, as a country. 
Um, and, and yet we're so blind. And, and, and I think we, we've got decent diagnostics, but all, all really the wrong ultimate optics, which is leading us then to the wrong solutions for how we address some of what we're experiencing now. So let me just define cultural idolatry. What do I mean by cultural idolatry? We usually talk about idolatry in personal terms, like somebody has an idol. Um, but I wanna back up and talk about it more systemically and talk about cultural idolatry. Let me define this for you biblically. And again, these words are not exactly in the Bible, but the concepts. Cultural idolatry is essentially, they're essentially demonically influenced ideologies that are embedded in social institutions that form us or shape us through embodied habits, stuff we do every day with our bodies and our minds and our hands and our tongues and our our bodies. They, They form us through embodied habits that compete with and ultimately compromise our loyalty to Jesus and his way. So let's break that down. Three kind of primary components of cultural idolatry. Ideologies, institutions, and habits or liturgies or rituals. So the idea here is there is a false teaching. Idolatry always starts with ideology, right? And so let me define that because there's a lot of talk today about ideologies, ideologies being thrown around and, and this is kind of a buzzword. What is an ideology? An ideology, the root word there is idea. It's, it's actually a collection or a system of ideas that tell a story, that narrate to us a story about the good life about what it means to be happy, about what it means to be whole, about what it means to flourish. That's the, the basic premise of an ideology. It is a system of ideas put forth as a story in the world. You know, it gets put into art and music and movies to try to capture our imagination and to say to us, this is the good life. Now, a lot of what I'm gonna share with you here over the next few minutes comes from, this is not a new idea. This is something people have been talking about, cultural commentators, Christians have been talking about. If you wanna read more about this and do a way deeper dive on this, my favorite is a guy named David Coises, who is, uh, he's written a book called Political Illusions and Visions. He talks about, a lot about this. Leslie Newbegin, an old uh, missionary, uh, British missionary and, and scholar, talks a lot about this. Um, You can read about this in lots of different places. But essentially, there are two main components of any ideology. Now, bear with me just for a second. I wanna give you a little philosophy here. Um, An ideology is uh, a system of ideas, first, that takes a partial truth and tries to make it the whole truth. In other words, it recognizes in the world some fundamental aspect of God's creational goodness. Whether or not it's Christian or not, it looks and says, yes, this is good. This is the way we were designed to operate. This is bad. This is not the way the world was supposed to operate. And it points those things out and then builds a system of life out of that one partial truth, builds an entire story or system and tries to make it the whole truth. So for instance, take some of the most popular ideologies on display. Koizis talks about these popular ideologies in his book. Progressivism. Progressivism uh, takes development, takes change, takes creativity and a desire to move towards the future and to jettison things that are oppressive in the past. That's, That's not a bad thing, right? Like that can be a good thing. Conservatism takes a love for tradition and continuity and, and, and a desire to conserve what's good and true and beautiful in history and to bring it forward into the future, to be slower to change. These are the two competing, primary competing ideologies of our day. 
but they're actually very similar. Socialism recognizes the good of economic justice and wholeness for all people and how economics influences our political discourse and action. Nationalism recognizes the good of community solidarity and a love for history and a shared tradition that people of the same ethnic group and same heritage share and says, yeah, that's good. God created us for that. Liberalism, classic liberalism, takes individual freedom and responsibility and says, that's good. The problem is though, when these become the whole way that we view the world, to take apart and make it the whole story, right? Socialism has a story of the world. They have a, a, a vision of good and evil and they try to make that the dominant story of the world. That's where we get into trouble. And that leads to the second component of ideology. Ideologies elevate partial truths and make them ultimate truths. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you, but that's the language that um, Christian theologians use around idolatry. So ideologies become over time idolatries. And here's what I mean by that. They tell a story of the good life. Like every ideology has a gospel. This is the good news. They have Uh, They make an effort to evangelize you. This is the way the world should be. If you're not on this side of history, you're wrong, you're evil, you should be canceled or whatever. They have a priesthood. They they offer sacrifices. There are conversion stories. There are initiation rites similar to baptism to to those who are awake to see they're brought into this, this movement. There's a dogma. There's discipleship and education that happens. There are teachers of the way of whatever this ideology is. There's excommunication. There's an eschatology. There are, it impinges on our identity. It forms community and a sense of belonging. It gives us meaning and purpose. It defines our ethics and how we should live in the world and it gives us a sense of hope. Maybe except for nihilism, which says there is no hope. Like the Bible talks a lot about these ideologies become idolatries. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, that these same issues were going on in Corinth before they came to uh, Asia Minor. Paul says this, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments. That, that's the word for, well, let me just finish. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. This is the heart of idolatrous ideology. It takes knowledge, which the word, it literally means words or ideas or thought patterns. And then every lofty opinion, you could think of that as kind of like, Elevated opinions. We live in a world that's been said of an opinionocracy, right? Where everybody has a valid opinion that can be put forth in the public square. It's, it's elevating these things and they become strongholds, satanic strongholds. Notice they're anti-God. They are aimed against the knowledge of God. And they are used by the evil one to destroy, to undermine human flourishing. They're raised against the knowledge of God. That's the idea of an ideology. And those ideologies become idolatries. I mean, we live in a world right now of idolatrous ideologies. People serving gods. They're not even aware of. They think they're serving a cause. They think they're serving an institution. They're actually serving an idolatry that's been manipulated and animated by the evil one to work against flourishing. 
the primary ideology that was tempting these Christians in Pergamum was not atheism, right? Like Caesar or Jesus, but idolatry. That was the temptation. That's the age-old temptation for all Christians, all times, everywhere. It is not Caesar or Jesus, but it is Jesus plus Caesar. It is you can have Jesus and you can have all of these things in culture. You can immerse yourself in cultural institutions, wealth, sex, power, beauty, connections, influence. You can have all of these things and have Jesus too. You don't have to be weird. I mean, our, our generation, younger generation is obsessed with being cool. We, we do not like to be uncool. It's not cool to be uncool. And, and we don't like to be outsiders. We don't like the culture wars that our parents fought and the way that those culture wars were fought. So our strategy for the last couple of decades has been, let's infiltrate these structures and let's see if we can be cool. And then we'll win them. And if the, the temptation of our parents' generation was to colonize culture, the temptation of our generation is to be colonized by culture, to compromise. See, they, they weren't actively promoting this teaching, but they were allowing it to happen. They were giving safe harbor to false teaching and just saying, hey, it's okay. You can be an insider. You can be cool and you can be a Christian. You can participate at church on Sunday and all the festivals and the guilds and all of the cultural idolatry happening Monday to Saturday. There was an interesting article recently by uh, a journalist who's not a Christian. And he was talking about some of the, uh, a particular fall of a, of a celebrity pastor. Um, and I'm not gonna mention the name, but he had some really interesting insights about what's happening right now. He sees something deeper than just celebrity pastor culture. He says there's mainstream culture, celebrities, fashion, music, modish polit political activism and a message of self-love. And here's the key phrase, but with a twist of Christianity. Most people stick with mainstream culture because they can have all those things and premarital sex. We can see the with a twist of Christianity trend elsewhere. Falwell, Jerry Falwell, the president of Liberty back in the 80s, was representative of the right-wing business-oriented evangelicals who offer capitalist self-enrichment and hubristic jingoism with a twist of Christianity. Then there are progressive Christians who promote the usual left-wing causes with a twist of Christianity. While different in belief, such people share patterns of thought. The former believe secular individualists mysteriously share God's wishes for what should be done with money, while the latter think that secular progressives mysteriously share God's wishes for what should be done with bodies. So if Christianity is such an inessential add-on, that's the idea here, it's an add-on, why become a Christian? He's asking, is a non-Christian? I'm not religious, so it's not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their beliefs should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there is nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. That sadly, well, I put the person's name, appears to have been true of this person and his celebrity acquaintances. Wow. Profoundly insightful from a non-Christian. He's saying there, there's, 
There's a progressive version of this cultural idolatry as much as there is a conservative. If you, if you are a progressive and you only see it in Christian nationalism or what you perceive to be that, you are missing it on your own side. And if you're a conservative who only sees it in the far left, you are missing it in your own camp. There is a progressive version and a conservative version of idolatry that is very much alive in the church. Let's not even talk about the world, in the church. So we have to understand these for what they are, ideologies and idolatry. I don't have a whole lot of time to go into this section. I wanna kind of fast forward a little bit, but the second piece of this cultural idolatry is the institutional piece. So how does it actually work? How do these ideologies like get down into our bones? How do we absorb these unconsciously and implicitly? Because again, nobody starts out saying like, I wanna worship Jesus and I wanna worship Satan. Like no, no Christian starting out wanted to do that, right? But there was a drift over time into these practices and ways of being. <laughs> I, I have a little trauma here because uh, I, I grew up in a Christian school. So I don't know if any other Christian school kids, homeschool kids, but I grew up in a very conservative Christian school in the South. And uh, part of my 12th grade uh, curriculum, uh, the capstone curriculum was worldview training. We read this book called Understanding the Times. And it's a fantastic book. I mean, there's some helpful things about it. But the way that we kind of thought about ideologies was they were, there, there's this like satanic propaganda out there, right? And so if you play like certain records backwards, you'll hear like a satanic message. I mean, like don't watch too much Seinfeld. Don't, you know, buy like ACDC albums. Like this is kind of like the world that I grew up in. It, 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 if, you, if you didn't grow up in this world, God bless you. But uh, I'm thankful for a lot of things I was given. But the idea was you learn these worldviews, nihilism, postmodernism, relativism, right? And then you scan the environment. It's like this infectious disease that's out there in the world. And you scan the environment and you find those ideological intellectual messages and you resist them, put up the armor of God. And it's usually ironically found not in the church or not in the conservative subculture I've found, but it's outside of that. It only exists in non-Christian cultural mediums like art and music and movies. And you avoid it like the plague. But here's the thing about idolatry. It's so much more subtle than that. If only it were just bright messages on billboards that says, here is Satanism, come into the church of Satan. I mean, this is a time, it's hard to imagine this. Some of you grew up, didn't grow up in the 80s, where kids were being reportedly snatched and taken off into the woods for like satanic initiation rites. Like this was a thing back in the, in the 80s and parents were deathly afraid of this. Like that's not how it happens, people. It's just not how we get inculcated. Idolatry is much more subtle than that. One author, uh, Jamie Smith, who's a, a philosopher up at Calvin College in Michigan, he argues in a great book called You Are What You Love that idolatry is actually more liturgical than it is intellectual. By liturgical, he just means the habits and the rituals that we engage in with our minds and our bodies on a regular basis. We are not just brains on a stick, he says who absorb ideological messages through overt marketing. But he says, we are fundamentally lovers whose loves are shaped by what we desire, what we long for, what's in our imagination, and then the habits that we form that support that imagination rather than this buffet of ideas that we rationally choose from and say, I'm gonna choose this or I'm gonna choose this. He says, it's much more visceral than that. It gets embedded through social institutions. And that's the idea of idle food and sexual morality. These are just representative of social institutions and what Smith calls cultural liturgies. 
or secular liturgies. Temples, guilds, think of those like YPO associations. Universities, private clubs, your family. These are all social institutions. God has given us those social institutions for our good, but in the hands of Satan, they can be twisted and lead to distortion. And these social institutions form a matrix of cultural power that shape their everyday life and that shape our everyday life. The threat of alienation for a first century Christian was as strong as the threat of persecution. We'll talk more about that next week. When people started to follow Jesus, they had to reevaluate their participation in these institutions, the primary one being temple worship. If you wanna read more about that, go to 1 Corinthians and read chapters eight to 10. It's all about, in Romans chapter 14 and 15, it's all about these battles over, can we participate faithfully in these institutions without compromising our loyalty to Jesus? It was a massive, massive division in the church, just as it is today. Because idolatry can lead to idolatry. Ideology can lead to idolatry. So these food offered to idols in the sexual morality are representative of things that we do with our minds, our bodies, and our souls that form a kind of internal covenant or an internal loyalty that oftentimes is opposed to what we say we believe. So we can say, I love Jesus and live away over here with all of our habits and practices that actually leads us away from Jesus, compromising the very faith that we're trying to protect. Because idols are not just wood and stone. Cultural idols are not just messages. They're, they're loaded with values and political agendas and ways of life and an ethos and even religious loyalties. That's what Newbigin points out. As the West becomes more secular, we're gonna see the rise of what he called more political religions. Politics will take on a religious air, and that is exactly what we see today. These institutions attempt, Smith says, to command our allegiance. They vie for our passion. They aim to capture our heart with a particular vision of the good life. They don't wanna just give us entertainment or an education. They wanna make us into certain kinds of people. We need to recognize these practices are not neutral, they're not benign, but they are loaded to form us into certain kinds of people to unwittingly make us disciples of rival kings and patriotic citizens of rival kingdoms. Let that just kind of sit on you this week as you go to work on Zoom. Do you watch movies? I mean, there's all kinds of examples. He uses the stadium as an example, where we pledge our allegiance and we watch military events unfold in front of us and we, we think of competitive bloodthirst in our 21st century way. He uses the mall, which maybe Fresh Market might be a better uh, an, an analog now, some kind of Fresh Market Amazon combo. He talks about the university. We could think about kids' sports and, and the sacrifices that are being made week in and week out with parents and their children on the altar of, I want my kids to be successful. I wanna give them a head start. And again, I'm not against these things, but they can become idolatries. Um, we can look at uh, our workplaces and the industries that we're in, the networking circles we run in. We can look at our social media consumption as a formative institution. I mean, the average, you know, the average Christian millennial last year consumed 3,000 hours of digital content, only 150 of which was actually explicitly Christian. We are being formed at a ratio of 20 to one. 
by things that are not driven by God's heart. Podcast, Instagram influencers, Tinder and online dating if you're single. You wanna watch more about this, watch the, the documentary, The Social Dilemma. I mean, it's basically just like the, 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 the Silicon Valley is programming algorithms to bend and shape your mind and to profit off of you, essentially. Algorithms that are exploiting psychology to profit off your mind. You're telling me you're not becoming a certain kind of person. I'm not becoming a certain kind of person watching that and clicking and liking and loving every day, all day, every week, every year. It's crazy. Of course we are. And the point of this apocalyptic literature is to pull back the curtain on all these things and say it's not just social media. It's not just politics. It's not just a stadium. It's not just Amazon. There are spiritual forces and powers that as we do these things are doing things to us. And if we're not careful, they'll begin to compete with and corrupt and compromise our faith. That's why Augustine so long ago said, you are what you love. Smith says, you may not love what you think, so pay attention to your habits. We need in this moment to be able to see through the rhetoric, to be able to see through outrage, to be able to see through the polarization, the shaming that's all around us and discern how and to what ends we are being shaped and who our real enemies are. And that's the invitation here. So we just wrap up. The invitation is to repent. Jesus invites us out of cultural idolatry through an ancient practice, two ancient practices, repentance truth. Rethink the way you see reality. That's the idea of repentance. Jesus says, I'm going to come to you with a sword and I'm going to war against. That's battle language for Jesus. He's saying, just like Balaam was killed by the sword. If you read the rest of the story of Balaam, he was killed by the sword by Joshua as they went into the promised land. So I'm going to war against, I'm going to battle against my enemies and I will defeat them. I'm not going to defeat them the way that you think. The sword coming from Jesus' mouth in the book of Revelation is symbolic for truth. It's symbolic for the word of God coming with the words of God. I mean, did you read that? I'm coming, but notice how he's coming. I will wage war with the sword of my mouth. My words. Now here's here's what that means for us. The real battle happening around us when we look at ideologies and we look at idolatry is not between right and left. It is not between progressive and conservative ultimately. It is between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, amen? It is not between right and left progressive. There is a kingdom of darkness in the progressive ideology. There is a kingdom of darkness in the conservative ideology and in the socialist one and in the capitalist one and in the rationalist one. The message of Revelation is Jesus is the cosmic king. And Jesus is coming. He is the truth. And he is coming into the world. He has come into the world as the lamb who was slain. And one day he will come and he will judge the wicked and he will judge these evil powers and he will forever wipe evil from the face of the earth while establishing his new kingdom on earth. That is the message of Revelation in a sentence. So I want you to hear me because we, people miss this all the time and people leave our church for all the wrong reasons, because they misunderstand the nature of what I just said. Hear me say this 
again, we are not a progressive church. We are not a conservative church. We are a church deeply committed to Jesus and to his kingdom and his spirit-empowered way of life in the world. And at times, that will make us look progressive. At times, that will make us look conservative. And if you can't handle that tension, you've been co-opted by the powers of darkness. So make sure we're fighting the right battles. And notice again, finally, that the way Jesus fights this battle is with the truth of his words. Jesus is the word of God who speaks words of truth to his people. What, is, what do I mean like by recovering truth? I just mean like truth is not propositional facts. Truth is a person. Truth in the Bible is God himself. Jesus said in John 14, six, in the midst of all kinds of idolatrous ideologies, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Truth is alive, truth is personal, truth is relational. It is more a way of life, it is a person and a way of life than it is a set of propositional facts that we just memorize to fight culture wars. The way of Jesus must be the thing that grounds us as a community. By the way of Jesus, I just mean the ancient way, what's called the way in the book of Acts, a body of truth, beliefs, teachings, practices, and narratives that are rooted in the character and the nature of God that keep us aligned with the heart of God as we live amongst all of these different idols and ideologies. That way of life has been codified for us in the scripture. We don't have to guess. We don't have to make it up. We don't have to reevaluate it. We don't get to deconstruct it. We have to obey it. We have to surrender to it. That's why this community is so important for us right now. This way of Jesus has been embodied, not perfectly, certainly, with all kinds of injustice and idolatry along the way, but it has been transmitted down the generations, embodied through the teachings of the church, the lives of Christians for thousands of years. We need to hold on to truth. We must hold on to truth in a world that is tearing it down. In churches that are tearing it down. We're just out of time. There's so much that I wanna say, but I wanna close with this invitation, two practices for us to consider as we go to communion. The, The drift towards ideological idolatry is so subtle. All of us live, most of us live in Broderpool. You have a radon detector. If you move into a house and you have high levels of radon above like three, you have to get mitigation. It's this tasteless, odorless, colorless gas that fills our homes and can actually kill us, poison us. That's how ideology and idolatry works. And so just like with radon, we need to become more aware of how we're being shaped, how we're being formed. I wanna encourage you, practice one, a liturgical audit for you this week. I want you to sit down and to spend some time reflecting on the institutions that you're involved with, the practices that you repeat on a regular basis that may be so automatic for you, it's like driving. Like sometimes you just go somewhere and you're like, I don't even know how I got there. That's the ones I'm wanting to get at. So in community, I want us to look at 
What are the things that I'm doing on a regular basis? What are the habits and practices I'm engaging? I'm not saying we withdraw from society. I'm not saying we become hermits, but I'm saying we become aware of what we're doing. What are the things that I'm doing that are doing something to me? And what is it doing to me? What story and vision of the good life does Silicon Valley have for me every time I click on this post? What's the vision of the good life? What's the story? What's the sin that's being countered here? And the remedy that's being offered? What do they want me to love? What kind of person do they want me to become? What kind of person am I becoming as I engage more and more in this practice? Am I becoming more loving, more patient, more joyful, more kind, gentler, more self-control? Or am I becoming a hateful, spiteful person because I'm involved with this ideology and idolatry? The second practice is just the practice of scripture, right? It sounds so basic, but I think most commentators see this as an invitation to to just engage with scripture. Scripture is called a double-edged sword in Hebrews and and in Ephesians chapter six. Scripture is God's revelation of himself and his truth. It's an invitation to encounter reality, to see reality as it really is. This ancient book has timeless words for us. And if you're a person that struggles to trust the Bible, let me just say this to you, I know. And I know there have been many people that have used the Bible in all kinds of ways to justify all kinds of idolatries and injustices. But that says something about them, not about scripture. We cannot know God. We cannot know his character. We cannot know his purposes. We cannot know his heart without scripture. And I realize that sometimes scripture feels way out of sync with where we are culturally. But here's the thing. I wanna encourage you, look at Jesus. If you have trouble with the Bible, look at how Jesus approached scripture. And if you wanna be a disciple of Jesus, base your life on the way that Jesus based his life, which is scripture. Don't believe the Bible just for believing the Bible. Believe it because look at how Jesus engaged scripture. He immersed himself in scripture. He meditated on scripture. He quoted scripture. He memorized it. He internalized it. He believed it. He taught it. He lived it. He obeyed it. We can trust the Bible because we can trust Jesus. Jesus says it's important. We should think maybe the problem's not Jesus, but maybe it's us. Maybe it's our culture. Maybe it's our cultural lens. Maybe it's our cultural idolatries. We need to engage scripture. We need to saturate ourselves in this mental map that once internalized and and continue to be internalized as we read it and we internalize it and we obey it through the power of the spirit can transform our minds, renew our minds, renew our hearts, capture our imagination in a fresh way and give us a vision for what it looks like to be faithful to Jesus amidst all the marketplace of ideologies and idolatries. Jesus says to the one who conquers, I will give hidden manna, I will give a white stone, I will give a new name. Jesus says, I'm gonna give you myself. Don't settle for feasting on cultural idolatries, those things you can see Feast on the hidden manna, and I'll give you a name. I'll give you my name. I will transform you from the inside out. I will give you an identity that is not based on ideology or idolatry, but that is based on the reality of who I am. And that will be the thing that will carry you and empower you. And so we don't need the wealth, the beauty, the power that comes from what name our culture can give us. He says, come to me. One day you'll feast with me. 
And that's what we celebrate in communion each week. And so let's put aside our stuff as we go and we'll sing uh, this last song as we take communion. This is what we celebrate every week in communion. Feasting on the reality of Jesus, who he is, his life, his death, his resurrection. Being conformed to his image as we come to the table. We internalize his truth, his character, his nature. We see ourselves as we really are, sinners who are deeply loved by Jesus. We live in that tension on this side of the kingdom coming back. And so we come and we confess our sin. We confess our idolatry. We repent, we turn away. We think differently about how the world works. We see the curtain pulled back and we say, ah, I've been serving idols and I need to turn around and I need to return to Jesus. I need to return to truth and and allow this truth to transform me. That's what we celebrate every week in communion is that Jesus has come, he's given us his body. He says, I am the bread that comes down out of heaven. Feast on me and you will live forever, Jesus says. And this is our opportunity as Christians to feast on the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus as represented to us in the cup and the bread. So just take a moment to confess your sins, to invite Jesus into this moment with you. Take a moment to feast on his goodness his beauty, the wealth that's yours in Christ by virtue of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the hope that's yours in the future forever because you are united with him by faith. Think forward to the day that Jesus returns and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And we sit around the table with him and we dine, (laughs) not in weak sauce temples with idols and demons, and the trappings of pseudo-religion, subcultural civil religion. We dine with God himself. We have his name tattooed on our foreheads, on our arms, on our bodies. We belong to him. We worship him. We love him. We trust him. Like, let that capture your imagination and cleanse the idolatries, the ideologies that just soil.